This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of New Books Network. I'm your host, Origno Gupto, and today we have as guest Dr. Amar Sohal, and we'll be discussing his new book, The Muslim Secular. Amar Sohal is an early career research fellow in politics and international studies. Uh, an intellectual historian of modern India and Pakistan, Amar is interested in those ideas that continue to shape contemporary politics in both countries. His research focuses on anti-colonial nationalism, religious politics, and the secular state. Amar's work contributes to an emerging scholarship committed to understanding key intellectual anti-colonial figures as political thinkers. It seeks, therefore, to not only fill a historiographical void, but to use the neglected aspect of anti-colonial thinking to participate in a present-day discussion about the political in South Asia. Amar completed his DPhil in history at Merton College, Oxford in 2019, under the supervision of Professor Faisal Devji. He has since revised his dissertation for, a mo- for the monograph, which we'll be discussing today, The Muslim Secular. Uh, it examines the political thought of three eminent Indian Muslim nationalists of the 20th century, Abul Kalam Azad, Sheikh Abdullah, and Abdul Ghaffar Khan. His next project explores how a set of modern Hindu nationalists engaged in fraught experiments with conservatism, secularism, and ideas of Pakistan. His work has been published in leading academic journals like Modern Intellectual History, Global Intellectual History, and South Asia on ethnic nationalisms, ideas of modern nation, competing strands of secularism, and ideas of constitutional parity. I was introduced to Amar's work through the wonderful hour-long documentary film, Azad and Jinnah, a political rivalry in late colonial India, which was released in 2016. Um, it features dramatizations, interviews with leading academics and some of Amar's initial doctoral research on two key figures of partition in South Asia. On that note, I would uh, like to welcome Amar and uh, introduce uh, the rest of the audience to your wonderful work. Welcome, Amar. Thank you, Aurigno. It's very kind of you for a very warm introduction. I'm very much looking forward to this discussion with you. Me too. Uh, I'd like to state uh, at the beginning that it's a it's a pretty it's a quite an interesting day to have a discussion on secularism and the failure of secularism in South Asia, given we've just witnessed the inauguration of the Ram Temple at uh, Ayodhya. Absolutely, and um, you know. Indian secularism is in crisis and has been uh, for quite a while now. Um, so absolutely perfect time to discuss, I think, some of the uh, antecedents for this uh, moment, if you like. Absolutely. Uh, that's a that's an interesting way to think about antecedents. It's uh, the rich intellectual history that you've provided and the deep critique of liberal ideas of secularism kind of, uh, I feel, goes straight into the critique of contemporary politics in South Asia and beyond. And I feel that's uh, that's one of one of the key elements of the book. So a little bit, let's begin a little bit on uh, on, you know, your uh, how you came to be a historian and, you know, um, narrowing down on on such a such a fraught topic. Can you tell us a little bit about your trajectory? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, the seeds of this project really were sown when I moved to Oxford for a master's degree uh, at the end of 2013. I just graduated at that time with a history degree at um, University College London. Um, and I you know, kind of been schooled in traditional empirical methods there and had a firm grounding in history writing from that degree. Um, but I hadn't really explored political thought or intellectual history in any great depth, you know, just kind of a little bit here and there. Uh, Concepts were very much part of the work I was doing, but you certainly wouldn't call it political thought. Um, And so I went over to Oxford with this specialization in Indian history, which I got in London, but I'd also worked on Britain. I'd also worked on Latin America there. 
Um, and I did a master's in, in Indian history, political thought um, with Faisal Devji. Uh, and it was there that I was encouraged really to think about the possibility of excavating from the archive of India's leading political figures, political principles and political philosophies, which in many ways transcend their concept, uh, co uh, context uh, to produce, uh, you know, uh, universalizable uh, um, ideas. Um, and that really was something that inspired me. So at the same time, I also um, did some papers in Hindi and Urdu literature while I was there. And I went away from that degree um, thinking, oh my God, you know, I might come back to this at some point, you know, or maybe I should apply for, for, for a PhD. Um, I took a bit of time. I took a year out. I made the documentary that you spoke about. I was quite um, keen to do public history public engagement because I felt that some of these ideas, these contested ideas around um, Muslim belonging in South Asia uh, were not really front and center. You know, Muslim political thought has really been dominated by the foundation of Pakistan and religious nationalism. But of course, that was a contested question within the community. And I wanted to bring that out um, uh, in my work. And one way of doing that, I thought, was through film. And, and I had the opportunity to make a Special documentary film uh, back in 2015 and which released in 2016. I then the following year uh, took up the DPhil for the same reasons. Um, and you know, that took me four years, and now I'm here in Cambridge on, on a four-year junior research fellowship. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I would I would uh, like to foreground of uh, how much you have unsettled the traditional narrative of um you know the of the history of pakistan which which dominates the uh, any history of uh, muslim act political action and i i'm glad you brought that up um on that note i i, I was wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit of how you came to work on these really divergent fascinating but less talked about figures of um, you know south asian history absolutely i mean uh, i think Abul Kalam Azad, Maulana Azad, you know, India's first education minister in Nehru's cabinet, has been written about a little bit. Um, but certainly not the other two figures, Sheikh Abdullah and Abdul Ghaffar Khan. They haven't been treated as, as, as political thinkers. But really, you know, this exploration began when I was, you know, struck as a student uh, by the near absence in the historiography of Muslim voices, not just these Muslim voices or these Muslim arguments, um, but really in general, Muslim arguments for secular Indian nationalism, even though secularism, structurally speaking, and I make this point in the book, has to always be firstly, uh, not only, but firstly, the prerogative or concern of the minority in any society, right? You know, if you um, have a religious majority um, which has a state in its name, uh, there, there will be elements of the religious majority which may not be comfortable with that for a variety of reasons. But the impact that that has on the religious minority is structurally different and more acute. I mean, that goes without saying. So I think, you know, when we talk about Indian secularism, um, we often talk about the position of the Muslim, but we talk about the position of the Muslim through the lens of its Hindu thinkers, right? Gandhi, Nehru, or its Dalit thinker, uh, Ambedkar, uh, and constitutionalism. Uh, and if not those uh, figures, then we think about the position of the Muslim in India through Savarkar, uh, uh, the Hindu nationalist, uh, who wants to, of course, excommunicate the Muslims for being, um, for holding uh, uh, extraterritorial affiliations, in his words, uh, with, uh, you know, holy lands beyond the uh, domain of India. And so, um, I was struck by the absence, you know, here is this concept, the, the, the you know, the secular in India, in which, uh, for which, um, you know, the position of the minority is crucial, but the minority doesn't really speak um, uh, historiographically. Of course, politically, there is, you know, in Indian uh, politics, I would still like to believe, is a plural space in which there are all sorts of voices, you know, lower caste voices, minority voices, and so on. Um, but this this absence uh, in 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 the historiography in political theory uh, concerned me somewhat or interested me, uh, and so I kind of followed followed that through. 
Um, and of course, once you decide not to transform the minority into a sovereign national community in the way that Jinnah does, right, with the creation of Pakistan, then um, you have to reckon with, 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 with this problem. Um, so then I kind of landed at these three figures. Um, and it wasn't really by accident, although initially I thought it might be by accident. Um, because, of course, Azad's stature in the Congress is great. You know, he's 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 the president of the Congress for six years uh, during the negotiations around independence and partition. Um, he doesn't really have a great constituency of his own because, of course, the Muslim League by this point has, um, you know, taken that over uh, and successfully, even if India's franchise is restricted and so on. But the the same can't be said about the other two, Abdullah and Ghaffar Khan. They are the uh, foremost. Uh, popular regional leaders of uh, Kashmir and the frontier. So I thought, well, you know, you could look at this question in, in a variety of different ways. Uh, but to begin with, I felt that these three figures and then their acolytes or those around them uh, would, would um, be a good way to start to excavate this, this, this political idea, or, or at least this response to the national question from the perspective of Muslim. That is that's really fascinating. And it comes up just very clearly in, in the way, in, in several parts of your book. Um, on, on this note, um, I think it's a good point, good place to um, tell the audience a little bit about the central argument of the book. In other words, what is the Muslim secular? Well, you know, you might have to give me a little time <laughs> to explain that. Um, I think, you know, uh, you know, I'll break this concept down, the Muslim secular, by, you know, first trying to define what is secularism. Um, and then we'll get into like how the Muslim bit or, or, or Islam fits in into all of this. Um, of course, secularism, as it, you know, whatever its origins may have been, um, you know, in, in, in Europe around the separation between church and state and so on, in modern politics, and it's true not just of India, but I think of the world in general, uh, secularism really is about the state's management of religious pluralism, and it you know that's a that's a universal concern everywhere, right? Uh, but it's it's especially so in India because of its diversity, uh, it you know its sheer diversity. You know there aren't just Hindus and Muslims, but countless other minorities. Um, and secularism, as it's emerged uh, in India over the last you know. Um, century or so uh, uh, as, a, as a theory or as a concept has taken on, as you well know, and, and many of your listeners will know, its own meaning, right? Uh, religion remains public. And of course, I'm drawing on the work of uh, Professor Rajiv Bhargo here um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and others, of course. But, you know, religion really remains public in India uh, for secularists, right? Uh, and the liberal state keeps a kind of principled distance to use of Hargav's words from each faith and intervenes only to maintain individual rights vis-a-vis -vis com uh, communitarian rights. Um, uh, so that's the role of the state, but society more broadly is, is tasked with producing a culture of coexistence and understanding. So therefore secularism in India or South Asia is not simply legal, right? It's not simply a cold constitutional principle, but is rather a felt social one. Um, so that's really the broad outlines, of course, of, of secularism. So how does Islam fit in here, right? Uh, so for my figures, um, you know, they're really wedded to uh, the essential universalism of Islam. Uh, what does this mean? In their rendering, really, you know, um, you know, and this is quite typical. Uh, uh, this is quite a typical normative rendering of Islam. There's nothing unusual about it. Uh, but the unity of humankind matters. It's not just the unity of Muslims, uh, but rather their view of their religion is that, um, well, you know, uh, is Islam has been mandated to avoid the division uh, on, on racial and ethnic lines and to unite Muslims and humans uh, on the basis of their humanity alone, right? And so... Um, when you start with that belief and the nation state concept arrives, especially after the collapse of the Turkish Caliphate and, you know, the Khilafat movement in India and the idea that, well, you know, this old imperial world is going to be replaced now by this 
world of nation states, it becomes increasingly clear through the interwar period. What to do then now with this nation state when you have disavowed racial division? So for figures like Azad, really, it's about tempering the nation state with the kind of, you know, uh, ecumenical uh, uh, view uh, that, um, you know, we can still be proud or we can still um, uphold our cultural distinction. But that doesn't mean we're going to hate on someone else's culture, right, uh, to put it crudely. So, you know, it... Uh, the way Azad, uh, you know, he writes an essay in 1927 called Islam and Nationalism, in which he uh, uses the phrase of, you know, a chain of relative extensions. What does he mean by that? He means that, you know, from the local to the regional to the national and to the universal, you have this chain of human unities and one leads very easily into the other. So nationalism, as we think about it, um, you know, perhaps on the liberal left, as this dirty word, is certainly not the way that Azad and figures like him, even Nehru, are using it. They're using it uh, not in uh, a chauvinistic way, but rather to defang it of its chauvinism and uh, make it compatible with, 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 with the universal or even humanism, because of course Azad is also using the phrase insaniyat a lot, right? the concept of insaniyat, uh, which is uh, humanity. Um, so we can see now, um, you know, uh, for him, for Azad, especially, uh, the national really is the kind of um, penultimate orbit of social consciousness, right? And uh, the, the final one being the kind of universal humanity. And so, and so you can see the Muslim secular beginning to build here, right? The accommodation of Indian pluralism with uh, what is taken to be an authentic Islam. But there's something much bigger going on. So that's really the foundation but it's India's Muslim minority, which is of great importance. It's, it's, the, it's the status of being a minority that is particularly important to this concept because you know, it's that which produces a different kind of engagement as I've already kind of touched on. Uh, that numerical weakness is so important because for Gandhi, for instance, um, you know, Gandhi's very interested in engaging in an ethical conversation about toleration and recognition of different forms of truth. Right? And he has an idea of friendship and uh, the absolute distinction between Hindu and Muslim friends who agree to be friends rather than engage in a relationship of brotherhood, which he thinks is volatile um, and laden with expectation. But that's not enough for, for these guys, right? Because that uh, forces Hindus and Muslims almost into some kind of silo as well, right? It forces them into the, you know, it 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 exaggerates their distinction. Of course, uh, figures like Azad, Abdullah, and Abdul Ghafar Khan don't want to give up their distinction, right? But they don't want their distinction to be highlighted to such an extent that that in itself minoritizes them, right? So there's that. And the liberal law that interests Nehru or socialist or the socialist politics of interest that interests Nehru interests these guys as well, but that's not enough either. Right? There has to be something more. So what is that something more that can offset this minority position, which, however sincere Gandhi and Nehru may have been, that it can't really be their uh, main concern for obvious reasons, right? So what do these guys produce? They produce a concept of parity. And you might understand this as a radical kind of equality. Of course, parity um, has been associated not with these figures traditionally, but with Jinnah and the legal demand that Hindus and Muslims be treated equally constitutionally speaking, regardless of their difference in number, right? So 75% Hindus, 25% Muslims, crudely speaking in colonial, colonial India. Let's have a constitution, or let's have a, a, an assembly or a parliament in which they're represented equally, or you turn them into nations and give them their own states, right? That's how parity as a concept has been thought about in colonial India. But I try to use this concept in a different way by suggesting that what is the definition of parity? Well, parity really conveys distinction, but it also conveys commonality, right? So commonality, we are alike. We are not the same, right? That's our distinction. 
but we are alike. And Jinnah is only ever concerned with the distinction part of this equation, right? Uh, whereas these figures are concerned with both the distinction, they want to remain Muslims, and they want Hindus to remain Hindus religiously, but they're interested in commonality. They're interested in the extra religious engagement between these two communities that produces nationality th through things like culture, through things like the anti-colonial struggle, through things like federation, language, and so on, right? And we'll get into some of those, some of those themes soon. But essentially, uh, what you end up seeing is the kind of, there is a dialogue and, 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 and Muslim political thought, Jinnah, as well as these figures, converges, I think. Its coherence lies in the concept of parity. But my claim is that actually Azad, Abdullah, and Ghafar Khan produce a kind of richer, thicker definition uh, of this concept and take it to its uh, epitome, if you like, conceptually. Um, so what do you, why is this important? Well, it's important because you elevate Muslims uh, to a social but also a moral position from which they can claim that they are of equal value to Indian nationality. So Azad talks about an inherited culture from the early modern and medieval period, um, which is grounded in Hindu-Muslim mixture. Right? You can't have this culture without the other. They are both critical to it. They're of equal value to it. When Abdul Ghaffar Khan speaks about the nationalist struggle against the British, he realizes that uh, this quest for freedom is the quest not just of uh, one group or the other, it's the quest of Muslim Pashtuns and the Hindus of the Low Country, right? Uh, the Pashtuns from the Northwest frontier. Uh, and they are both committed to this project while other groups in the country, including Muslims elsewhere, he believes, are not. And therefore, they're equally reliant on each other, uh, Gandhi's Hindus and Rafat Khan's Muslims, to put it crudely again. Um, so there's a form of parity there. And Abdullah uh, in Kashmir, uh, for him, you can't think of Indian unity really without uh, the consent of its uh, federal components. And so therefore those federal components, you disaggregate India in order to aggregate it again. Um, so that's really how um, I've structured it. I think um, there's a little bit more to be said if, you, if you'd like me to expand on uh, themes around antagonism and loss and it kind of how those feed in to, to the central argument. Would you like me to, to, to go there? Yeah, that would be a great segue. Um, antagonism and loss, yeah. Sure. So really, you know, there's a kind of uh, clear understanding um, uh, that uh, for these figures, that amity and enmity name Hindu and Muslim relations, Hindu-Muslim relations. Um, you have kept your distinction intact, right? I, as a Hindu, have kept my distinction intact. You, as a Muslim, have kept your distinction intact. And that's a good thing. Right? You are entitled to, to your uh, religion and your theology and so on. Uh, we are not the same. Right? That's important. Uh, but religious consciousness, uh, if taken too far, can breed a level of dangerous political opposition as well. And they believe that partition will only institutionalize the worst parts of Indian social life. Right? Because you have that amity, you also have this enmity. And it might be baked into... Um, you know, in their words, perhaps, or even in Ambedkar's words, misremembering uh, India's history to some extent. Um, so there's this long engagement between Hindus and Muslims, which, you know, is both friendly and um, antagonistic. So, the, you know, you so what these guys end up doing is they embrace the loss of an often former or idealized Muslim sovereignty to found the Republican peace, right? Whether that um, sovereignty was national, i.e. Mughal, right, or regional uh, in, in Kashmir at various points in the, in, in the past, um, although that, of course, has its own history of subjugation, right? Um, and then, of course, the, the, the ethical code of the Pashtuns, Pashtun Wali, which is, which is you know, uh, uh, tagged on to the myth of the self-governing uh, Pashtun. Uh, so, you have all of this stuff that you, you have to dis dissolve these sovereignties or, or these, these myths into something grander. And this is not something sacrificial at all. It's like, it's a kind of, 
it's not something sacrificial which is being done by the weak here. Um, they understand that they're striking a compact with loss because they believe they actually have strength, both in sheer numbers. This is the largest Muslim population in the world, right? It might be a minority, but it's a huge, in real terms, it's a huge population, right? Um, and it also has its provinces. Um, so they're confidently dissolving these, uh, these sovereignties, if you like. So that really is the, the argument that the Muslim secular is another form of secularity that pluralizes secularism as a tradition in India. Uh, but its concept of parity, which, 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 I, uh, uh, which really is central to all of this, uh, is what pushes, I think, uh, Indian democratic theory to new limits. It's a bit like Ambedkar in, in, in a sense, with affirmative action, because Ambedkar's call for affirmative action for Dalits or formerly untouchables in India. Um, his claim, of course, is that equality is only possible if you can first acknowledge and account for deep historic inequality, right? Um, so you might say that these are ultimate forms, the Muslim secular and Ambedkar's affirmative action uh, are ultimate forms of trying to produce an Indian equality. It's a, you know, the Muslim secular perhaps as a hyper form of, of Indian secularism, precisely because of its minority subject position. And it's, you know, the Muslim makes secularism thinkable uh, in this kind of extreme way, just as the Dalit makes uh, an equal India um, through its constitution uh, thinkable. That's, that's a really fantastic exposition of the argument. Um, I also feel that along with, you know, uh, a, a vision towards the future, um, what, I, fe I felt a little bit the Muslim secular brought in was historicity. And when you mentioned loss, it wasn't an imagined mythic historical universe. It was grounded. And all the three figures that you bring out were deeply grounded. And we will bring up the argument of historicity, um, you know, soon uh, or in, in, in a bit. Um, but I, I want to touch a little bit on the, the you know, the absolute incredible um, depth of source materials and the range of it. So could you tell us a little bit about how the archival research or, uh, you know, interviews um, and everything that you did materialized? Uh, it is a multilingual, uh, multi-sided uh, archival work. And uh, how did the plan kind of pan out? Well, um, as you know, this was my DPhil thesis, uh, doctoral thesis, and you know, which I converted in, in, into a book uh, for Oxford University Press. But um, really, like when you're at the beginning of the project as a, as a DPhil student, you know, uh, you don't really know what you're doing. I think, um, and you just you know prepare this bibliography. I remember my supervisor asking me to prepare a bibliography that I was meant to then you know uh, read through. Uh, and the bibliography was so long, I don't think I even got to the end of it because I realized very quickly that to excavate, you know, dormant political philosophies from, you know, the archive of these figures, that's what I wanted to do. I realized that the archive of archives of these figures were actually very vast. Um, and there was no dearth of sources. There were, there were plenty of sources. But, I mean, principally, um, you know, I focused on, you know, published and unpublished speeches, letters, many tracts, memoirs, uh, treatises, um, not just of these uh, three, but also figures like Humayun Kabir, for instance, uh, who was a Bengali intellectual, well-versed in Urdu, um, who was Azad's secretary on a few occasions and very close to him. Uh, and uh, he helped me kind of flesh out, his texts allowed me to flesh out some of Azad's ideas even further. And the same is true for Muhammad Yunus, uh, for Abdul Ghaffar Khan, he was a much younger uh, political activist who became an Indian diplomat after partition. He left the frontier for Delhi, um, and he's written, uh, uh, you know, two or three uh, quite chunky books. So I had all of those were my main sources, right? Um, uh, then, of course, there were the sources of their interlocutors. Gandhi, Savarkar, Ambedkar, Jinnah, Iqbal, and so on, Nehru. But yeah, I mean, I've also tried to tie it into the social milieus in which they operated. I didn't want to 
extract them entirely from their context. You know, I wanted to still be the good historian. And I saw uh, as I was exploring those social milieus um, that, uh, you know, some of these ideas had much in common with uh, some of the poetry of the time, for instance, right? Especially in the case of Azad, um, you know, he shared his uh, social milieu with a progressive, uh, you know, uh, you know, communist intellectuals who wrote poetry, but their poetry about the nation tallied quite well with his idea of the inherited nation from the early modern medieval period in which, you know, India is this hospitable land in which Hindus and Muslims are both arriving groups, right? Which is very different to the way it's framed today, right? Um, and because like Josh Malihabadi and Firag Ghorakpuri, you know, Muslims and Hindus um, are in a way fulfilling his national idea at the very moment in which he's making those arguments through their poetry, which is being read uh, across the cities of North, North and Central India. Uh, so yeah, it's a kind of, it, it is uh, a mixed archive, um, but I think, you know, uh, it's still very much focused on the texts of, of, of political thinkers. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, I think a follow up question would be to to kind of ask you on this um, new method of doing intellectual history. And I feel like you're, there's a lot of conceptual history, and you've, you're you're using thinkers and theorists who've um, articulated both methods of intellectual and conceptual history. And you belong to a tradition. You're training, you know, the Oxbridge tradition. Um, there are some fantastic scholars. So could you tell us a little bit about this this method and this new direct new direction in which I believe a new political history is being kind of thought about um, and the gharana that you belong to? Wow, that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the ustad, or the two of them, I suppose, of this gharana, uh, one being Professor Shruti Kapila here at Cambridge and the other Professor Faisal Devji, who was my supervisor at Oxford, I think, you know, about 15 or so years ago, maybe a little more than that, uh, they made a conscious effort to um, think about what a, what an intellectual for his, uh, history for India might look like. Uh, because, of course, in the West, in Europe, um, uh, you know, the history of political thought has been associated with armchair theorists, right? Um, so, uh, of course, in India... Uh, when you know the formative moment of political thinking, of course, is the anti-colonial struggle because it's there that you're thinking about, okay, well, what is our country going to look like? Um, but these are not armchair theorists, right? These these are often activists, independence, uh, you know, agitating for independence. And so, um, what you're left with really is trying to excavate political thought from. Uh, the statements of people who are in thrown in jails, who are on the streets protesting, who are sitting on sitting at negotiating tables the next day, right? So you you're having to um, go through minutes of meetings with colonial officials, or you know uh, meetings uh, of the Congress Party or the Muslim League, or the so so you have all these various different sources uh, from which to to try and uncover. Um, a set of principles, right? These are not uh, the kind of tracts that, say, Hegel or Schmidt may have produced, right, at various different points, you know, in in, in German history. Um, you're left, you 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 you're, you're looking at something quite different here. So I think you know, um, and 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 Shruti and Fessel showed that that was possible. Um, and you know, uh, Fessel's book, Muslim Zion, uh, on the creation of Pakistan as a political idea um, was very inspiring for me as a student. It made me think that, well, okay, if this is such a brilliant exposition of that idea. What about the reverse? And we had many conversations about that when I was a master's student and then as obviously as a DPhil student. Um, but yeah, I was very much inspired by that method. It, it also, what really inspires me is the idea that history can speak beyond itself. And this project allows it to do that. Whereas I felt, if I'm honest, um, you know, uh, traditional histories of what happened and how it happened and why it happened um, was too much locked in its context. And so maybe that's too heretical a thing to say. 
but abstracting out of the past to think about the future and the present was what appealed to me. Um, and I, I guess one thing flowed from the next. Yeah, that's uh, it flowed really um, yeah, candidly, if I may. Uh, the other thing I noticed uh, when I read read the book, and uh, I and, and and as the audience will also pick up, uh, the the really the prose was fluid and it didn't jump to conclusions. It didn't theorize. It didn't um, lead us into territories all of a sudden and there was a very close reading of some fantastic you know um, polemical uh, literary political treatises and I feel uh, the grounded a little bit of your method of uh, could you tell us a little bit of this this method of close reading and yet producing a political theory from texts that don't call you know I, I know the actors don't fit into the model of armchair theorists but even the texts appeared quite disparate and yet there was an amazing um, coherence in the book I'm very grateful that you think that is the case <laughs> and um, uh, uh, I, I think I uh, I mean I wanted to excavate properly and I felt that the way to do that was to um, read the text very closely, uh, almost as if one was doing a study of literature, right? Um, and that's, I don't know if, it, you know, if that uh, answers your question entirely, but I wanted to obviously uh, bat different texts off against each other to make sure that those were the concepts that were coming through. Um, and so I think you see that in the book where I'm, you know, the first two chapters, for instance, are on Azad and acolytes around him. And I'm constantly trying to bat them off against each other to show the depth of particular ideas around hospitality or inheritance or monarchy um, and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know, really. I mean, if I'm honest, I just tried to um, read the text as closely as I could um, and try to be true to it as much as I could be. Um, I think sometimes in history writing, we don't really dig deep enough when we think about a concept. We just say a concept exists. Um, but, and of course, on the basis of evidence, of course, that is the principle, you know, the founding principle of historical inquiry, of course. But we don't, we don't think it really uh, is the historian's job always to go deeper and, you know, become almost a philosopher. Um, and I felt that that was the interesting part. Um, and I guess that's the kind of schooling I've had, um, you know, uh, especially at Oxford. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> that, 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 that comes out as well. Um, I think this is also a moment to, to think about how you divide the thinkers in, your, in the book and, and thought process. And uh, the first half is dedicated to Azad and his acolytes, and then it moves to to. Uh, somewhat regional figures. So, could you tell us, like, how the, in the in the process of dividing the chapters and dividing the thinkers, were you also thinking about, you know, the nation, the future, etc.? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, there are four chapters in the book, and they're divided into two parts, and each part has two chapters in it, and they're quite long chapters. Maybe they should be shorter chapters. I don't know. Um, but. Um, the first uh, part is really the Muslim minority context of Hindustan or North India, right? Um, Hindustan, of course, being the the, the, the the Persianate name for North India, but uh, which has so much cultural meaning um, uh, through the early modern, the medieval, early modern, and then modern periods, right? Especially for figures like Azad, who come from the upper caste, Ashraf, um, uh, Muslims who claim lineage from, 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 you know, the last caravan, as he puts it, of settlers. Um, but it's in that context where Muslim minorityhood must be dealt with in very direct ways. Although he is connected up with Calcutta and Bengal and, and then Delhi, he is an Urdu-speaking Muslim who doesn't really identify with any place, but rather backgrounds the local to speak for the nation. Right? And so therefore, he's forced to deal with this minorityhood in very direct ways um, because he's thinking at the all India level. And so I wanted to kind of give that uh, give that um, uh, its due and 
position it vis-a-vis Hindu nationalism and Pakistani Muslim nationalism um, and, you know, uh, explore that context, which I thought was actually quite different, although it has its commonality to make the larger argument that we started with, is quite different to the Muslim majority context of Kashmir and the frontier, where nine in 10 uh, subjects of the British uh, Raj, or in the case of Kashmir, the Dogra Raj, um, are Muslims, right? Um, things are quite different there. And my argument really is that, you know, anchoring Islam within regional Kashmiri and Pashtun identities um, allows you to effectively territorialize it as a religion and then settle the question, therefore, of Muslim political self-statement, which is so vexing for Indian politics in this period. So you settle it in this way, you ground Islam in Kashmir, you ground Islam in the frontier, and then you can come together at the national level. And I wanted to explore what that was about. Um, how is it that, you know, um, what did it mean to um, locate regional or, you know, to kind of merge the regional, the ethnic and the religious, um, which often produce problems with local minorities, but it didn't necessarily produce problems at the national level, especially when these figures were imagining a federal structure, right? And I also wanted to bat, uh, back against, um, you know, um, some of the historiography in which, you know, the majority provinces of British India are always Bengal and the Punjab. Uh, and I know here sit a Punjabi and a Bengali discussing this, but maybe that's a good thing, right? Um, actually, these are not Muslim majority uh, provinces, right? They are pluralities with very slim Muslim majorities, right? Um, and, um, you know, so there's a logic to Indian nationalist ideas emerging in Kashmir and the frontier where the idea of domination from outside, at least in that period, perhaps not today, right? Um, was kind of unthinkable. You know, the Congress movement or the nationalist movement was meant to be this inclusive thing. And so they could get behind that um, and, and, and believe that they were not in danger of losing their identity at home where Muslims were dominant, right? And they had their own particular idea of Islam, right? So, so Islam is molded with Pashtun Wali to produce ideas of patience or fortitude, sabr, right? Um, for Ghaffar Khan or bravery, um, and so on. In the frontier, uh, sorry, in Kashmir, you know, there's a local, the, the, the local shrines are extremely important to Abdullah's founding of a regional Islam, uh, which has its own uh, jamaat, you know, in, to use his own words, which is, you know, almost in opposition to, um, you know, some shrines in the rest of India. And I, I speak a little bit about that. And, and so I wanted to explore that and I wanted to get away from the fact that I wanted to get away from Bengal and Punjab where actually things are very contested and it doesn't produce the same kind of Muslim political confidence, right? Because there's the possibility that advancing, economically advanced minorities often uh, could, could overpower these very slim Muslim majorities. That's not to say that those places couldn't produce a politics. Uh, you know, a, a non-sectarian uh, or non-religious or anti-Muslim league politics. They did. There were figures in those places. Basrul Haq, for instance, Sikandar Hayat or Khizar Hayat, um, right? There were figures like that in Punjab too. Um, but they, um, you know, but they were not as dominant, right? Uh, so I wanted to explore that and I kind of broke it down in that way, Um and I, I felt that that was the, the best way of doing justice to these two quite different positionalities, which nevertheless come together uh, at, at, at a kind of central point to, to think about an Indian national question. I thought the regional was also important as a way of disaggregating um, the bigger question. Certainly. Um, it's also a fitting uh, moment to bring up the interventions and you've, you've just alluded a little bit to the historiography that you were going up against. Could you tell us uh, a little bit of where you think you're intervening and a little bit on what the established scholarship, it's, it's, you don't have, it's a lot, I understand, mm -hmm. but even then a little bit would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, a lot of the groundwork has been done for us in the last 15 years or so as we've just spoken about the creation of intellectual history or, or, the, or the, the political thought of India as a field. Um, 
so it's no longer totally surprising that someone would engage in a project uh, in which political actors are turned into thinkers, right? That's not um, a historiographical uh, contestation that one necessarily needs to have anymore. Um, I think that question has been settled. I'd like to think it's been settled. Um, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, the historiography is still, of course, divided uh, around whether these, fi these uh, figures are, um, uh, you know, manipulative actors invo involved in political maneuvering and constantly trying to get one up on each other so that they can have power in this kind of, you know, Cambridge School way of doing Indian history of the past? Um, or are they actually thinkers and, and, and capable of producing principle? Do we have a charitable view of human nature or not? <laughs> you know, or you know, can interests sit with ideas? I think both can sit together. Um, I think in the past, uh, there, there, was, there, was, there was a dismissal of ideas, right? Um, so uh, I, that's what I would just say historiographically without getting into the nitty gritty. Um, but I also think that the work mine and others, um, you know, my peers, uh, but also, you know, you know, uh, our supervisors and so on. Uh, the work also speaks to political theory is what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, because I think uh, the Muslim secular is a, is a, is a, is a concept which I think has universal import because it speaks to minorityhood everywhere how to how to do integrationist nationalism uh from the position of minority now that's not a normal way of thinking in in the mid-20th century right where after the war you break the world down into national majoritarian states and this is this could easily be thought of as the kind of a history of the losers and in many ways it is but it's also another way of doing politics and so i think uh, just like other strands of Indian political thought writing, um, I'd like to think that it, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that the work produces um, a set of questions which which are for South Asia, but also for beyond it. Definitely. Um, I, I, I really like the, you know, um, the attempt at doing integrationist uh, histories and and from the perspective of the Muslim, uh, at different at, at various points, you you kind of uh, go back and forth to the princely states and what their vision, Princess Travancore, and how their kind of visions uh, uh, were similar to what a lot of the figures that you were talking about. Um, on the on this note, I do I want you to talk a little bit on uh, one of one of the themes that stood out for me is the the repelling of an exclusive idea of Muslim sovereignty and using historicity to regionalize Islam in all the figures and the specificities in which it came out? And what does it do to your argument? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, history is, uh, or inheritance, as I, as I prefer to put it, um, is uh, key to, to, to much of this imagination, right? It's particularly important to Azad um, because uh, his view is that um, you don't have to school Indians about the past. Right. Even if history is a contested site, right, it is possible that because amity and enmity exist in India, that, um, you know, you can misremember this past if you want, or you can manipulate it in such a way. If you want to, you know, build up a narrative around difference, you can do that and you can do it successfully, uh, whether you're um, a Hindu nationalist or a Muslim nationalist, you can, that can be done. So he's very much aware that this is a contested site, but essentially um, the the role uh, that he um, gives to himself or, uh, is to try to make Indians remember the past in the right way. Now, they only need to be jogged of those memories. One reference to India's shared literature, shared art, shared, shared uh, food, or, or any other form of uh, any other social element um, is enough to jog their memories because they know this stuff already. And I think that's quite a powerful argument. So essentially, inheritance is an active principle to which Indians have to be responsible, right? Uh, but their leadership um, only needs to jog the memories of its constituents. So 
he will never write a book like Nehru, The Discovery of India, right? Where this long book, which kind of tries to find out whether this is a nation or not. Azad basically says, well, whether you like it or not, we are a nation. We live in the same place. We understand each other's customs. In many ways, we share many of them. Uh, there are some we don't. And Indian uh, culture is a fact of life. Um, so he attaches an unusual degree of historical veracity to these claims, um, um, which is quite you know, amazing. But at the same time, you know, he's, he's calling out the historians as his allies. It's quite incredible at one level. Um, but at the same time, uh, he sees little intrinsic value in exhaustive histories. Um, and I think that's very important. So he's interested not in the battles of kings, but is instead interested in the cultural inheritance. What we what do we inherit from these darbars? Of course, the darbar produces this culture, um, and but but that is precisely what matters. It's the account of present possession that that matters. So the long history of Indian monarchy is never ignored, but it's you know kind of subordinated to a focus on culture and society. Um, so that's that really is his exploration with history. Um, for Abdullah, it's slightly different. You know, I begin the chapter on Abdullah um, with, with uh, his kind of dialogue with Iqbal, Muhammad Iqbal, the Muslim philosopher of Kashmiri descent, and Nehru, another Kashmiri emigre. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of look at the um, statements on nature in Kashmir uh, and how, um, you know, uh, Kashmir's celebrated landscape produces a kind of metaphorical power to very economically uh, mark out Kashmir's distinction from the rest of South Asia, right? Uh, one reference to the mountains, uh, one reference to the hills and the meadows is enough to tell us that you're referring to Kashmir in Iqbal's poetry, for instance, right? So this metaphor is extremely powerful in these narratives that Abdullah and others create around the ethnic nation, right? Um, but, and, and you know, there's a, his, but, but the problem is that it also allows you to reference the past of subjugation because the nature is a non-human element, right? So it can be taken away from Kashmiris quite easily as we're seeing today. So um, he realizes that he has to go to other uh, themes to produce a nationality for Kashmir, and then a supranationality for the for all of India, and to to join to join India and Kashmir together in some kind of federal compact. And of course, I'm thinking primarily prior to independence, you know. And I think that's also important to emphasize. Um, and that's when history becomes important again. You know, there's a history again of enmity with the Mughals, with the Sikhs, with the Afghans, but again uh, with the Dogras. But again, religion is not important here because that all of those groups, all those empires are upheld by rulers from all communities, right? There are Muslim rulers, Sikh rulers, and Hindu rulers. So in a sense, it's quite interesting how the, uh, in his case, the history of enmity produces a kind of secularism in a funny way. Um, and so historicizing the question of, Indian nationality or Kashmiri nationality is important to him. And the same is true for Abdul Ghaffar Khan um, in the frontier, where Pashtun uh, uh, ethnic um, identity is obviously historicized. But history cannot award the Pashtuns an Indian nationality. That's also important to understand because, you know, as Pashtuns, are these Indians or are they Afghans, right? You already have another, you know, state over the border with not an ethnic majority of Pashtuns, because this is a plurality as well, but they're still the largest ethnic group in that country. So it means that you can, if you can make a, an argument for India's connect, historical connection with the frontier through the Vedas and the arrival of Sanskrit and, you know, all of that and, and, and the Aryan invasion and so on, um, you can just as well make an argument for a historical connection with this region, with Afghanistan, and, and its potential secession from any future Indian nation state, right? So um, history is not enough. And so 
there, there's also the limits of history, is what I'm trying to say. History plays a role, inheritance plays a role in this political thought, but in certain places, it has its limitations. And therefore, he has to go to more civic, more presentist uh, ideas, such as socialism, Nehruvian socialism, nonviolence, which of course he shares with Gandhi, um, which, but he theorizes very independently through Pashtun Ali and Islam, and I'm not the first person to make this argument, of course, Mukulika Banerjee has made it before, and so have others. Um, but I'm quite interested in the kind of limits of what history can do um, for the Pashtuns and forces them to make an argument about the future when they speak of India, right? Um, so yeah, maybe I'll leave it there. Yeah, no, that was uh, really helpful. Um, I think along with uh, along with this this uh, fraught um, relation with history, there's a there's another there's a distinct rejection of uh, a Muslim sovereignty and rejection of partition that that stands out in all the actors. And at the same time, there's there are different different voices of federalism or provincial autonomy. Um, I feel I felt. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because this this seems. Uh, quite central the way in which historiographies have approached um, the politics of partition, the politics of federalism, and so on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, the, the question of federation um, in India, I think it may be like secularism in a way, is a concept on the, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a declining concept, perhaps, uh, uh, I mean, there's some very interesting work coming out on it historically. I mean, uh, Sarat Pillay's work, for instance, on Travancore, which we, which you briefly uh, referred to, and I draw on that to make the comparison between, you know, the constitutional monarchy of Travancore and some of the ideas that Abdullah plays around with uh, about what can be done with the Dogra monarchy. And he does some interesting things with it um, by kind of saying, well, you know, I am a Kashmiri Muslim leader. I've tried to reach out to... The Hindus of my state, I've tried to reach out to the people of Jammu, but I have kind of failed at this. And so I will use the house of the Dogras and I will reposition it for a constitutional monarchy. I will empty it of its real content of monarchy and subjugation and autocracy. And of course, his initial movement in 1931 is against the Maharaja, right? But he's um, turns that around to kind of say, well, you can represent the groups I can't. So a constitutional monarchy will enable me to paper over some of these uh, divisions. And so, uh, and, 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 you know, to link this back to your question, really, you know, federation is what um, is interesting because it plays with India's uh, scale and its diversity, which, which is what makes it so interesting for political thought. It is able to distill a whole set of, uh, universal problems in politics uh, around, you know, identity and so on. Now, for these figures, Abdullah and, uh, and Ghaffar Khan, this, you're, you're very right when you say that, you know, the kind of federation that they imagine is different, right? There are different types of federation here. When Azad makes the argument for federation, he's really doing it, I wouldn't say cynically, but he's doing it in this kind of, well, you know, this is one way of cutting out the Pakistan demand, right? Um, and he his focus is always on the national, right? If something can be done to avoid the antagonism of partition, if something can be done to avoid the destruction of inheritance, then it must be done, right? Um, and, and there's an understanding that Hindus and Muslims are the main social groups in India, not the regional groupings, right? That's not the case for these other two figures. But while they may put primacy on Pashtun and Kashmiri identity, Abdullah and Ghaffar Khan, Abdullah is very invested in autonomy for Kashmir because he's already theorized a socialism for Kashmir, right? He's theorized um, a kind of, you know, far left communist inspired, um, only inspired because of course he's uh, breaking with communism in, in many ways with his land reforms and, you know, you know, turning the tiller into, um, uh, you know, the owner of land, right? This is the, you know, which is quite different. Um, uh, and there's some, you know, interesting new work coming out on that soon. There's all this uh, means that he wants to, 
be left to, to do what he, to, to enable or enact his socialist policies in Kashmir, his own vision of what Naya Kashmir will look like, right? Where the agricultural landed laborer will be empowered and, um, you know, there will be free education and free healthcare and, you know, he will dictate that policy or his national conference will dictate that policy to its constituents and to the rest of South Asia. And the rest of South Asia has no right to interfere in it. And that might be, that might be because of the princely state setting, uh, partly, that enables this kind of incubated theater. But that isn't to say that it's not in dialogue with Nehruvian ideas and Russian ideas and so on, right? Um, Anyhow, anyway, so that, that's one thing that's going on. But Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who's very much in dialogue with, with the Congress and with Nehru on socialism, right? And we always speak about Abdullah and Nehru's great relationship, which falls down in 1953. And this is part of the popular imagination of Kashmir's integration into India. Kashmir integrates into India because Abdullah and Nehru are friends, you know, apparently, right? Um, but it's actually Abdul Ghaffar Khan who sees eye to eye with Nehru on the socialist centralized state, which leads development from Delhi in a symmetrical way, right? So for him, federalism and provincialism is about giving ethno-linguistic identity to the Pashtuns um, and enabling that. Um, but the frontier is a deficit state um, and uh, the Congress ministries prior to partition realized that. And so it's an interesting kind of relationship with the federal. And so in Pakistan, after partition, Abdul Ghaffar Khan says, well, you know, what we need to do is what the Congress has done with the reorganization of linguistic states. Of course, he, he misses out the fact that that in itself was a bloody battle for the Nehru, for the Nehru government, right? Famously in, 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 um, in Andhra, right? So um, anyway, uh, these are different ways of approaching the federal question and different uh, sets of demands are made on what India as a, as a nation state is to be. Is it to be this kind of light, loose uh, United States of India in the way that Abdullah imagines it? Or is this to be a kind of, you know, a, a state of ethno-linguistic communities, uh, you know, storming through, uh, uh, storming on the path of a development uh, engineered by, by, by a, a Congress government in Delhi. So it's very different kinds of sets of imaginations. Yeah, that's uh, that was really a wonderful way of explaining and walking us through the ideas of federation that emerges in the book. Um, I feel like we've uh, we've talked a, a lot about the specifics in the book. I I do want to ask you where your intellectual uh, trajectory moves on from here on. You know, working on 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 such a rich topic and how you what are the legacies that you're carrying forward into your future work? It's a very good question. I wish I had a good answer for it. I feel pretty exhausted at the moment. So I don't know if, uh, how much I'll be producing. Hopefully, hopefully some more soon. I'm actually working at the moment on a special issue of a journal uh, on Kashmiri political thought and trying to make the argument that if India distills the, the, the problems of the world, the political problems of the world uh, in the way that um, we've come to understand over the last 10, 15 years, Kashmir in a sense encapsulates um, the, the problems of South Asia precisely because it's a contested site of sovereignty, uh, of course, for, you know, Muslim majority Pakistan, and then, uh, you know, India in all its forms, whether Hindu nationalist, whether secular nationalist. Um, and so these themes play out there, but of course, Kashmir has its own rendering of regional identity, as we've spoken about, also of socialism, of monarchy. And so in a sense, uh, 20th century themes um, or concepts and categories um, are you know, uh, reproduced there with novel meaning. And so I'm putting this together with, with some, uh, some, some more established scholars, but also some younger scholars. So that's what I'm currently working on. Uh, but I'm also working on a project um, in the hope of turning some Hindu nationalist thinkers of the modern period, uh, uh, you know, of, of contemporary politics um, into political thinkers. And we'll see 
where, where that where that where that takes me. Um, but it's at very very early stages at the moment. Uh, but the idea of pluralizing Hindu nationalism, I think, is important. Uh, there's a very important book coming out soon by Vanya Bhargav uh, on Lala Lajpat Rai, um, which does some of that work, which 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 pluralizes Hindutva. Oh, not Hindutva, but Hindu nationalism. Hindutva, of course, Savarkar's concept. Um, but of course, that's part of the problem. I think actually, you know, that slip of the tongue there tells you everything that actually we think of Hindu nationalism as Hindutva, as Savarkar, as this, you know, uh, idea of both, you know, the, the, the fall of Hinduism to Buddhism once upon a time, um, and then finally the need for excommunication of the the brother who's become the enemy by taking on these other um, these other alien faiths. Uh, that's of course Savarkar's rendering. But is there something more? Is it, you know, I I feel that you know because um, you know like Goldwalker, Savarkar have their differences, and we we've kind of ironed that out in the historiography. But I think there's a whole other set of thinkers um, which can pluralize the tradition of internationalism. So that's something I think is important to work on at the moment. I'd like to think. Um, so that's where I'm thinking of going next. Sounds fascinating. Uh, yeah, that's that's. We look forward to your works. Um, thank you for uh, you know taking the time out to speak about your exciting new book, and uh, I wish you all the best for your future projects. Thank you so much, Amar. Thank you, Arigno. It's been a pleasure talking to you.